This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we meet Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter, talk to the duo behind Sundance Film Festival's latest rebrand, and learn why 20th century artist Man Ray was such a key figure in fashion photography. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Costume designer Ruth E. Carter's decades of storytelling through clothing have garnered wide acclaim, and a couple of Oscars too. Frequent collaborations with directors such as Spike Lee, Ryan Coogler and John Singleton have made her a key player in shaping the presentation of African-American culture on screen. From 80s streetwear to royal regalia, her body of work is varied and crosses genre and style with ease. It's work that's covered in her new book, The Art of Ruthie Carter. With the publication now in all good bookstores, Ruth joined Monocle's Steph Chungu down the line to share her approach to costuming and touchstones for her inspiration. I'm going to tell you like it really is. Every election year, these politicians are sent up here to pacify They're sent here and set up here by the white man. This is what they do. Let's start with some of your earlier films. Many of them are period movies, such as Malcolm X and the late Tina Turner biopic, What's Love Got to Do With It? What does your research process look like for these kinds of films? How do you ensure the historical accuracy of these public figures? I actually take each film uh, as an exploration uh, unto itself, and it always brings a unique style to the approach of the research, which is one of the most enjoyable parts of actually creating a, a biography, a movie about a person's life with Malcolm X. Um, it was 1992 when we created it. I knew that the Schomburg Center uh, for Research on Black American History was a wealth of information and images about New York in the 1940s. And I was very excited about going into their archives and seeing what the photographers of the time um, had done in this, you know, a wonderful collection in Harlem, New York. When I was a little girl, Tina Turner, the research was right there with Tina Turner. I received all of her concerts, a family album of photographs of them at home, um, on the road. It was a plethora of information about her unique style as this rock icon. And I started to approach the films from this point of passion for the culture and for what their lives were colored like, if you would. I never yielded! And as you can see, I am not dead! All that challenge shit is over with. I'm the king now. Get those planes in the air, carry out the mission! 
I want to talk about your work on the Black Panther series and its sequel, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, both of which saw you win an Oscar for Best Costume Design. Now, Marvel gave you quite a specific design concept for the suit of the main superhero T'Challa, as well as a document called the Wakanda Bible, all about the fictional African country Wakanda, and the creativity took off from there. There is functionality to think about with designing costumes, as well as the appearance. So how do you ensure the costumes are practical for stunt work as well? Well, each uh, stunt player has a specific shoe that they have to wear in order to perform their specific type of stunt, whether it's martial arts or um, whatever it is. And they all come to you with every kind of a shoe, whether it's a boxing boot or a a Nike, you know, all type shoe. It runs the gamut. And you just wonder how it's going to play inside of the frame that we have uh, for the Panther suit. And it, it actually seems to work out. I mean, with a little bit of post VFX help, each uh, stuntman who wears the suit has his specific shoe inside of it. Within Black Panther, you reference a lot of African customs. For example, with Okay's beadwork on her suit, the Deneva's belt from the Yoruba culture, and the funeral ceremony scene where the entire cast was in white for the procession of T'Challa. White is traditionally worn instead of black in most African cultures. Can you tell me more about your research? Where did it take you? And how did you combine so many different cultures and traditions from various countries in Africa and made them modern? Much of my work throughout my career prepared me for this task on Black Panther 1 and Wakanda Forever. The building of a world and the detail that goes into creating that world for the storytelling, for the film audience, it requires a deep dive into the nuances of cultures. And because I had the past experience with looking into different eras that existed, I knew what I needed to have as a resource going into a fictitious scenario. So the funeral scene specifically, we utilize the historians that were available to us that told us about the white or the red. It was a choice of white or red. And uh, Ryan Coogler wanted the funeral to be pure white. And then it was a matter of actually unifying all of the tribes of Wakanda, unification of Africa in a sense, where the two funerals that would happen when someone dies, uh, the first one, a smaller, more intimate ceremony, and the second, a uh, bigger uh, ceremony, depending on the deceased and you know how prominent they were. And in this case, it was T'Challa the Black Panther. So it was all of Africa coming together. The beginning phases of that was to take the Zulu tribe and you know, paint out a lot of things. You would find the the hair and the the leather that we could combine together with the cowrie shells and and actually add more bright white to it. We got the Yoruba uh, drapes and we got the Turkana beadwork and we painted it. 
So it was a huge journey. We also screen printed our own Wakandan patterns and things onto the materials. And so you see Shuri's cape with the hood that she wears, her dress has the heart-shaped herb symbols on it, which was also used in the in credits, which was lovely to see because we created our own language and, and our own prints for Wakanda. And it really did give it a signature uh, for the film. But it was magnificent to be on set and to see the procession come through when you see Queen Ramonda with the Ishikolo that we 3D printed and then we painted white and her dress that had the Indebele symbols on embroidered on her dress, all tones of, of white to see the Dora Milaje uh, wearing their one-shoulder dress. Uh, they carry the, the casket with their exposed arm and to see the beauty of these women out of their Dora Milaje uniform, but also still very beautiful and uniform and strong and this vulnerability and beauty of this exposed arm added to the magnitude of the scene and and following you know behind them if we could have just kept that camera rolling which we did but not in the film you would have seen all the tribes represented together in groups coming through to process into uh, Mount Bishinga where where he's buried. Do you have any other arts or design that inspire your costuming work? It doesn't have to be within clothing. It can be in theatre or music as well. Always. I just like to surround myself with uh, images that inspire me. I started out in costume design in theatre and so I was inspired by, you know, Langston Hughes. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Douglas Turner Ward and uh, Zora Neale Hurston and uh, Black Theater was kind of my base uh, that I, I learned first. It also led me to James Van Der Zee and Teeny Harris, Paul Robeson. Old man river, that old man river, he must know something, but don't say nothing. You know, the painters, Jacob Lawrence, and was always examining like the collages and artwork of many eras of the artists of the of the time. I just felt like they represented to me how I would go about achieving color balance and storytelling and you know the cultural influences that influenced their work. They influenced me and I wanted to make the composition of a scene like one of their photographs or like one of their paintings. Well, anyway, we're going to do a tune called uh, Mopeda Blues. That's what I would uh, try to achieve with with uh, Mopeda Blues. I studied the jazz giants. Mm-hmm. 
Lester Young and Thelonious Monk. I really looked into their personal style and tried to bring that to Mo Better Blues. It's cyclical. When I think about my work, I think there are artists who lay the groundwork and that is there for us to be inspired by and take it into another realm or take it to the next level. And I rely on them. I rely on art to help me. And I'm constantly exploring artists, past and present. Ruth E. Carter in conversation with Monocle's Steph Chungu. The Art of Ruth E. Carter, Costuming Black History and the Afro Future, From Do the Right Thing to Black Panther, is published by Chronicle Books and you can buy it in all good bookstores now. The yearly Sundance Film Festival takes place in the mountains of the US state of Utah. While it's a mecca for cinephiles, given it's the largest independent film festival in the country, the annual event is also a graphic design hit, thanks to the fact that the festival has, since 1978, overhauled its branding for each and every edition. From 2023, however, this is set to change, with Sundance's organisers opting for a long-term rebrand from New York-based agency Porto Rocha, which is set to stay for years to come. Leo Porter and Felipe Rocha, co-founders of the agency, joined us to discuss the challenges and discoveries made when rebranding the festival. When Sundance reached out to us, they had a very sort of unique challenge that was presented to us. On the one hand, they had the legacy of being one of the most sort of prominent American film, independent film festivals. But over time, they grew quite a bit. Their needs shifted and also just the sort of landscape of how film festivals communicate to people have changed. Part of the challenge was how do we help them create a brand identity system that really helps them communicate in a way that's both consistent on a day-to-day basis. So when they need to post outside of the festival time, but also be surprising enough so that every year when they do come out with a new festival, they're able to captivate the audience and make sure that it's this really special moment that happens for about a week or two in Utah, here in the United States. Just the idea of what a, uh, an identity for a film festival, how, how it looks, it changed so much in, in the past years. Before, it was very poster-driven, pretty much like the poster was the identity, and the goal was pretty much to translate the poster in a lot of different formats. But now it's much more about how an identity system works and thinking about all the different touch points. So a lot of our work was also to create an identity that would be able to adapt to a lot of different formats. Also, it takes in consideration the fact that there's a lot they need to do, a lot of different initiatives within Sundance Film Festival that takes place all year long. There's also that really epic moment that happens during the festival itself which needs to be a moment of celebration, a moment where people come together and really celebrate the different narratives, the voices of the filmmakers and the best films of the year. I think one of the, the main challenges of the, the work was to create an identity without relying on photography and, and film. When we worked on the, the, the project, 
they didn't have the films selected for the festival. They didn't want to promote one film over the other. So the identity had to be very vibrant, very energetic, without using photography or film. It's more about really understanding what needs to take place before the festival, during the festival, and then after the festival, and creating a system that can adapt to these different moments within that journey. The whole idea is based on a very simple modular construct that's based on modules that can be rearranged, and they're inspired by different film ratios uh, from widescreen to uh, one by one, and we can basically compose these squares to create these different compositions that allude to a film strip. So it's a very simple idea, but what that allows us to do is really use that as a framework to showcase content, to uh, use photography, film, illustration, color. So it's a very flexible system that ultimately can embrace the supportive role of Sundance in the sense that it needs to talk about the films, the narratives, the people behind all the work that's being showcased. But occasionally also Sundance needs to be the protagonist of communication. And in those instances, we can really dial up the level of expression so that Sundance is front and center. And that was key to the solution. It can really flex between these different states and different sort of contexts, which are critical for how they yeah, talk to audiences and festival goers. Yeah, and the system works really well in moments uh, where the brand needs to be more expressive. For example, a poster to promote the festival and also works really well when it needs to be extremely functional. For example, signage, if you are there looking for a theater. So we also had to have that in mind, a system that could work in different scenarios. And also in motion, motion was such an important uh, element. Of course, it's a film festival and digital applications are so important nowadays. We like to say that the system is motion driven since day one big consideration for us was the fact that there are so many different genres, there are so many different uh, styles of films that are being showcased. We had to create a system that was neutral enough to adapt to these different voices and expressions. We're talking about Sundance Film Festival. It's inherently an iconic institution, so we needed to find that balance that allowed for that flexibility but also brought a very strong point of view. I think an important point to be made and this is very much aligned to how we look at design. It's also understanding that sometimes brands are meant to be supportive of other content. And especially when there's like this whole design discourse and people going online and critiquing work, they forget about context and they forget about the role of the institution that is being designed. And we were super careful because we didn't want the design to overshadow the work of the artists themselves. As a designer, not putting your personal interest as the only thing that matters and not thinking about just, oh, I want to make something that quote unquote is really sexy and is going to look great on my portfolio, but really understanding what is it that we need this design system to do? And how does that reflect our clients sort of values and purpose in the yeah. world. We had to take in consideration the location, uh, Utah, Park City, in the middle of the you know, mountains. Color played such an important role in the identity because the city, when we went there to see all the work, 
it was pretty much like just white because of of the snow. So color, it was really nice to see how color was really making an impact, considering the the landscape and the location. A big part of Sundance rebrand was looking at the very rich history of graphic design that Sundance Film Festival has and all the amazing designers they've commissioned and collaborated with over the years. We wanted to respect that history and make sure that we were up to the standard of high caliber design, but at the same time starting to rethink a little bit how can we create a system that can be redesigned in the future. We're going to hand it off and it's meant to be redesigned. It's meant to be reinterpreted. So we have this foundational framework that kind of is the through line that connects all the years to come, which is kind of a new approach. We wanted to make sure that the system was built in a way that we left enough room for it to be redesigned. Looking back into the references, one thing that was very clear is that every year is totally different. And we wanted to make sure that whatever we proposed didn't stop that tradition. One common thread between all the years is that like the identity it's always celebratory, it's always confident, it's always bold. It is more accessible. And I think that's one thing that we like to work with in, in projects that are like the, the, the design feels accessible, feels it's for everyone. And I think that's something that we, we wanted to keep in a way. Leo Porto and Felipe Rocha of the design agency Porto Rocha. We'll be right back after this. Comfex Summer Issue is our annual travel special. Come with us on a road trip in southern Portugal. Discover the wild beauty of the Italian island of Pantelleria and browse elegant looks that will take you from beach to restaurant. In our hotel special, we'll be off-grid in Andalusia. We'll be discovering the rarefied beauty of a revived neo-Venetian hotel in Capri and we'll be strolling in the Swiss Alps. In design, we'll visit a workshop crafting the iconic German Strandkorb and we'll step inside a modernist forest home in the Spanish mountains. Our fashion pages will journey to Beirut to meet designer Rim Beydoun. We'll crisscross the island of Mallorca visiting ateliers and we'll head to the Aegean and the Athenian Riviera to showcase the chic summer looks that will inspire your holiday wardrobe. Find the beauty in every season and subscribe to four editions of Confect today. Visit confectmagazine.com to sign up. Finally on today's show, we head to Belgium, where the Fashion Museum Antwerp's current exhibition, Man Ray and Fashion, focuses on the visual artist's wide influence. Best known for his pioneering fashion and portrait photography in the early 20th century, the show highlights how the US-born, Paris-based Man Ray brought surrealism to a wider audience, with technical brilliance and humour to boot. Monocle's Natalie Theodosi caught up with the show's curator, Romy Cox, to find out more. It has become defining of his work, right, that he was an artist, but he also created fashion photography. He shot for fashion magazines like Harper's Bazaar and for designers like Coco Chanel and Schiaparelli. And I think he was a pioneer of his time, right, the way that he mixed these two worlds. Was it something that was less common at the time? And has he paved the way for those two worlds to work closer together today? 
At the time, the fashion photography was a really new medium. In the fashion magazines in the beginning of the 1920s, most fashion was um, shown by fashion illustrations. He was really uh, together with uh, Baron de Meyer and Edward Steichen at the beginning of this fashion photography as a discipline. What was innovative in, in Man Ray's approach is that he used very innovative techniques for his art uh, photography, such as solarization and uh, rayography, multiple exposure. He used these elements in the, in the fashion photography and artistic set dressing. So his own artworks were figured in the, in the fashion photographs for uh, Harper's Bazaar, for example. Since then, I mean, fashion photography has evolved so much and, and is now so digitally focused. So why for you and for the museum, was it still relevant to look back at his work at this moment in time when fashion photography is so different? We were just like curious, like, can we find elements uh, in the work of contemporary uh, fashion designers and photographers that hark back to, to Man Ray? We did find some links sometimes rather like literal or obvious and sometimes also more on a subconscious level, which relates well to this surreal language where there is this preoccupation with the subconsciousness. For example, in the 70s, there is Guy Bourdin uh, that was really influenced by Man Ray. Also found some inspirations by Paolo Roversi, Sarah Mon, Mondino, Lactier. I think for the future and for now, the way of experimenting Um, with the medium of uh, photography, that is something that Man Ray did uh, very freely. Why would you say that his work and also surrealism in general has had such an enduring influence in fashion and design? Surrealism, like it emerged uh, during the 1920s as an avant-garde movement, and it was fascinated with the subconscious. And then from the end of the 1920s, erotic desire became a central theme and the female body was uh, chosen as a vehicle for surrealist experimentation. In the 1930s, the, team, the themes and the visual strategies of surrealism, they spread across the fields of fashion, advertising, interior architecture and um, product design. Uh, because fashion is associated with the female body, Uh, and the fact that the surrealist like, yeah, experimented a lot with the fragmentation and the domination, uh, distortion of the female body, that was something that, that went well together. Man Ray was, was uh, as an artist, somebody who under, understood the, the commercial uh, benefits of this, of this language because he then used it in fashion magazines. It became also more and more spread. In recent years, you see in more and more fashion collections, surrealism comes back. For example, Daniel Rosberry for Schiaparelli or Jonathan Anderson for, um, for Loewe. They sometimes say that the trend is linked, linked to the uncertainties we face today. On the other hand, fashion designers translate um, surrealism in many forms. It's like about like a, a way of thinking and creating that explores the boundary between reality and imagination. Um, for example, the famous uh, Belgian painter René Magritte said, to be surrealist is to banish the notion of déjà vu and seek out the not yet seen. And I think this quote um, describes well the, the approach of Belgian avant-garde designers such as Margiela and Dirk van Sane. And they, like, they referenced um, surrealism and Man Ray 
from the end of the 1980s. Surrealism is something, it keeps coming back. It's either a, like a, a personal approach or something maybe now a bit linked to this general uh, anxiety. The, inter the interwar period, it's something that we think about, I think, now a lot uh, because of the war and because of COVID. It's maybe also just because it's like there is a lot of humor in, in surrealism. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like your research process was really rich in, in references and in, in different mediums from the artworks to the works of, of the more contemporary designers that you mentioned. Did you discover anything new about Man Ray or the designers that influenced him during the process? And, and what were some of the most interesting pieces, whether it was art or a photograph that, that you wanted to highlight in the exhibition? The exhibition was, um, there was a first uh, presentation in Marseille and later in Paris. For Antwerp, we, we got to uh, add this contemporary uh, and also more a Belgian focus. And what was really interesting for me to learn, the link with surrealism in Belgian fashion is something that was happening very early on. There was a fashion house, it's called Norin. It was a, a couple, uh, Honorine de Schrijver and uh, her husband, uh, Paul Gustaf van Hecke. And they were very involved with also Belgian surrealist artists. And she used like an element from one of his paintings on her clothing, and she did it even before Schiaparelli. Romy Cox, in conversation with Monocle's Natalie Theodosi. The exhibition, Man Ray and Fashion, is on at MoMU, also known as the Fashion Museum Antwerp, until the 13th of August 2023. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.